0: Hello, and welcome to the Eurasian Knot. I'm your host, Sean Guillory. As you know, the Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and patrons who generously give monthly contributions to help keep this podcast going and allow us to do some other things, including improve the quality of the show by outsourcing some of the editing. So if you like what we do and you find it valuable, and I hope you find it valuable, please go to our Patreon page at patreon.com slash and become a monthly patron. So this week's episode is based on something that surprisingly I haven't done too much of, and I probably should. And that is, you know, University of Pittsburgh invites a lot of scholars to come speak. So the Slavic department at the University of Pittsburgh invited Ilya Vinitsky who is a professor in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at Princeton University. And he's working on some really interesting things. He's written a book about bad Russian poetry, which is probably the first time I ever heard about somebody writing a serious scholarly book about bad poetry. But more so, he's been writing a lot about forgeries and fakes and con men. And his new project is exactly that, which you'll hear a lot about in this interview. So I hope you enjoy it. I should also mention that at the end of the episode, we talk about a talk that Elia was in Pittsburgh to give on an African-American protest song from the 1930s called Sistrin and Brethren. I was looking for an audio version of the song, a recording of this song, and I I did find one at the University of uh, North Carolina. But unfortunately, the digitized audio is not available to researchers outside of the university. So I wasn't able to include it in this episode. So please forgive me for that. I I looked long and far for it. And unfortunately I just could not get a recording of it. Ilya Vinitsky is a professor in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at Princeton University. He's the author of several books on romanticism, emotion, translation, bad poetry, and fakes and forgeries in Russian literary culture. And his current project, which you'll hear a lot about, looks at a man named Ivan Rodny, John of the People, who was a Russian-Estonian expat writer, art critic, and con man who immigrated to the United States in the interwar period and lived until 1953, and the FBI happened to label him as the worst fraud that ever came out of Russia. Here's Ilya Vanitsky. <laughs> So it's nice to talk to you. Welcome to Pittsburgh. Before we start, Ilya, I'd like to have you introduce yourself. Oh, First of all, thank you very much for the invitation.
1: It's a pleasure to be in Pittsburgh and at Pitt. And I would start my introduction with just a confession that this is my favorite city and that my academic career started at Pitt. I taught my first courses here for undergraduate students, for graduate students at the University of Pittsburgh in the very beginning of this century I'm that old, and the pleasure was mine. I don't know if students actually appreciated this, but this is something which is very important for me, and on the map of my life, Pittsburgh occupies a very special place. I'm a professor of literature and cultural studies now, the field which I'm interested in. I started as a scholar of the 18th and 19th century, and my first book was about melancholy. I still teach graduate seminar on the history of emotions, which is another area I'm interested in, on Tolstoy, on 19th century literature, but my current project deals with mystifications and forgeries, and the action takes place mostly in Europe and in the United States. So this is what I'm doing. I have written several books, and the most personal one, perhaps, is the book on bad poetry, or I call it catastrophic poetry, or F poetry, <laughs> failed poetry. And it was written in Russian. It's been translated into English, and it will published by Northwestern University Press at some point early in the next uh, year, 2024. Why is this book the personal book? Because one of the reasons why I chose uh, this profession as a literary scholar was that my grandmother was a fan of Russian poetry and she copied all pre-revolutionary poems which were banned and dissident poems in special files, dossiers. I still remember the paper. So when I grew up, it was like a sacred place. For me, I learned these poems by heart since the age of, I don't know, six. I still remember the poem which was called Demon of Suicide. Not very good for a six-year-old person. So I started imitating poetry, not that decadent. I wrote the poems and my grandma copied them in special books, like collections of her grandson's poems. And she sent several poems to a very prominent Russian poet and translator from English, my translations from English poetry. And he responded and he said that your grandson will become a good prose writer. I did not become a good prose writer. I didn't even become a writer at all, but this trauma led me to literary criticism, but I still remember about bad poems which I wrote in the past, and so I decided eventually to write a book about the poet which had the reputation of the worst of Russian poets in history, and this book was about Russian love of poetry, graphomania, and the English title for the book is The Graphomaniac. What is it like to study bad poetry? Kind of dialectics, because as one of very, 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 very bad Russian poets wrote in the preface to his collection of very, very bad poetry, I'm very aware that these poems are not that good. But how would we learn that there is good poetry if there had been no bad poems? So this is a kind of ladder.
0: They need us more than we need them. But you had to come up with an idea like what is a bad poem? You have to have a a model of something to base... Off of. So, how did you identify bad poetry? Absolutely, it is a
1: construct, as well as good poetry is a construct. So, it's very difficult, actually, to apply universal criteria to what is good and to what is bad. It's like the worst film or the best film. It depends on the point of view. But I started my investigation with the statement that every culture creates a certain system of coordinates, and it chooses certain authors as the worst writers. It started in the ancient Rome, probably in the ancient Greeks as well. I'm not aware of this. There were two poets uh, uh, which had the reputation as the worst ones ever. No lines from these poets remained, only poems about them and how bad they were. But they needed these poets just to create what I mentioned earlier, this letter, this aesthetic hierarchy to prove that certain characteristics of poetry make it good or bad. So by investigating bad poets, we will understand the criteria, the system, uh, the reputations uh, better. So it's kind of... Uh, Diplomatizing approach. And the poet I wrote about was a real man. His name was Count uh, Kwastov. Count. He received this title from the emperor, Paul I. And he was a poetaster. He couldn't have stopped writing for decades. I wouldn't say that his poems were really, really bad, but they were considered as really, really bad because he outlived his own times. But he was considered as the opposite to the most famous of Russian poets, Alexander Pushkin. So what I actually suggested is that he is anti-Pushkin. Mm-hmm. Pushkin was aware of this, and he wrote letters, and he even mentioned Count Postov in a couple of his poems. And Postov dedicated poems to Pushkin. So these polls meet which are uh, other. But what I'm really proud of is that since this book, as I mentioned, was quite personal, I entered into the text some recollections about bad poems, mm-hmm. or supposedly bad poems, including my own bad poems. And I even wrote a blurb to the book, in doggerels, mm. like really bad. <laughs> and the book is a parody, basically, not only on our quite conventional vision of what is good and what is bad, but on literary criticism and myself as a literary critic as well. So that's why I consider it as, as the most personal book. Right. But the book which probably I'm associated with is the book which I started here at Pitt when I was a visiting. Assistant professor here, it's about spiritual seances mm-hmm. and Russian literature of the 19th century, the realist period, why realist authors were so much obsessed with the seances, with summoning the dead from the great beyond. Mm-hmm. So this is a serious project, but all serious projects border some kind of parody. Right. So uh, there was a chapter in my book, actually quite poetic. I called it The Dead Poet Society. I collected poems which had been received all over the world, actually. Here in America, the movement started from the great beyond, from Edgar Allan Poe, from Victoria Hugo, from Alexander Pushkin, from some minor poets, from one of the most famous Russian pornographic poets. They all interviewed them at spiritual sciences in the age of positivism and materialism, and they recorded diligently their texts or collected them and analyzed them as the phenomena of posthumous authorship. And ironically or not, I received a request from my editor from Toronto University Press. He asked me to provide copyrights for these (laughs) poems. And believe it me or not, I did do this. I just emailed back to my editor that I received the copyright the same way as these poems had been uh, received. And in the introduction of my book, to be sure, I express my gratitude to the goals of Edgar Allan Poe, <laughs> Lord George Gordon Byron, Van Parko, Alexander Pushkin for their kind agreement uh, to publish their afterlife poetry. But this is not a joke. It's just a test of the very institute of copyright, in a way.
0: I should let listeners know to hang on because we're going to have a bit of a seance towards the end of our conversation here. Always my pleasure, but I never participated in a real seance. Oh. I'm quite superstitious. Well, you might have to try that to do some field work. (laughs) So it's interesting what you've written about in the past. It does connect with what you're working on now, which is fakes and forgeries and con men. It seems you're particularly interested in the origins, how these things manifest themselves and get embedded in our society and become normalized. What drew you to the issue of fakes, con men and forgeries?
1: Well, there are two topics which has fascinated me since the very beginning when I started this strange job as a literary or cultural critic. The first one was the issue of translation and how certain authors managed to express themselves through translations of other poets from other languages by kind of appropriating their poems, how someone else's expresses one's own. This is a serious part of myself. And the second project was initially some kind of parodic because I always preferred to work on a serious topic and a kind of parodic topic at the same time, not to feel myself as a kind of guru, very serious with, I don't know, Tolstoy or Dostoevsky's beard and fiery eyes. No, I'm not like this. At least I don't want to be like this. So I accidentally actually found the topic of mystifications and as extremely interesting and important. But I was lucky now because in my profession, one of the happiest things which can happen with a literary critic is to find Someone from the past, as a historian, I'm interested in the past, who expresses something which you never thought about, but which is really, really important for you. So I was fortunate enough to find accidental, actually it happened at Oxford, the Arch Mystifier the Archvaker, who used to live in the United States for several decades and who was from the Russian Empire, but in fact, he was not Russian, although he presented himself as Russian. He was an Estonian peasant and he used to work in Hearst newspaper empire, Citizen Kane newspaper empire, and he published every weekend an article in one of the newspapers which dealt with Russia, Estonia, Finland, other parts of Europe, and all these publications were complete fakes. He was a fake himself, con man. And I was interested in two things. How do fakes work? Why the American audience was quite gullible to accept this? How these fakes spread all over the world? And this is easy thing because he worked for the newspaper with millions of copies throughout the world from New Zealand, England, Ireland, Canada, and of course, all states of the United States. So I was very much interested in the phenomena of mystification and the phenomenon of the mystifier, the faker. Why did he do this? What are the triggers for some people, like invented Anna, like the recent example, to create this, I don't know, constellations of forgeries and how it reflected American culture? And why did he need Russian material for his fakes? Why he was used by other people, including politicians? What was American culture in the 1900s, 1920s, 1930s? So by expanding the context, I reached the point when I realized that if I analyze him, I do not analyze only him. I analyze the culture, analyze the phenomena, and then I recall this fascinating, ironic statement by Umberto Ecker. I'll paraphrase it: that in America, there is a kind of the search for the absolute fake. Yeah. <laughs> but in my case, it was the search for the absolute faker, total faker. So I used him as the face of the phenomena, and I also made up uh, the name for the phenomena. I called it Babologe. <laughs> there is a Greek word for this, but uh, even for me, it's difficult to pronounce it correctly. So in this world, especially in starting from 2016, on, I think it's a very important yeah, okay. topic, and it's related to my ghost as well, to the afterlife poetry. Why people believe? Why people want to believe? That why some people want to deceive? and what we have as the result this world which is populated by fakes by ghosts and we do not even rely on our own existence as and the age of artificial intellect actually
0: makes it even more relevant i want to return to this issue because i agree with you i think this is very timely and looking at the past and how these things arose. So this man was named Ivan Narodny. Well, his real name was Sibul Narodny, which
1: means one of the folk, it was his nickname. And he was not Russian, he was Estonian from a village.
0: Yeah, so I was going to ask you if this was his real name, because as you point out in articles, it's essentially John of the people, right, of the masses. Tell a little bit about what you've learned about maybe why he engaged in this life of forgery, because it's not only The writing that he did, his whole persona, Mm -hmm. his whole background is a forgery. Absolutely. And it was also a mirror of the society
1: in many ways. He was born, as I mentioned, an Estonian peasant. He was autodidact. He did not get any formal education. Initially, he was interested in folklore, which is also a very telling thing, because when we speak about folklore in many ways, we speak about forged folklore. So maybe this is something which triggered his imagination. Then he joined Estonian national movement and worked as an editor of a very small Estonian newspaper journal in Berlin. Then he came back to the Russian empire, and he took part in the first Russian revolution. Mm. He was a minor figure in the revolution, but he managed to create himself a sort of persona of the great. They used the word revolutionist at Mm. the time. But before that, and actually some kind of connected to to this, he spent several years not in prison, but in mad asylum, because he had forged uh, Russian rubles Mm. Along with other fellows, they were sent to Siberia, but he was acquitted because he argued that he needed this money to create an independent community for Estonians in Chile. So for him, it was very, very important. So he was interrogated, tested, and the Consilium of Doctors acknowledged that he was half mad. (laughs) And he was released from the prison, joined the revolution, then collected money for the revolution. Then with this money, he left Europe through England and came to the United States in 1906. His visit was prepared by a New York socialist from Greenwich Village who loved him very much and who put into his mouth certain things which they wanted to hear from the great Russian revolutionists. Right. But speaking of his name by Ivan Narodny? he already used this name when he came to the United States, but uh, according to the recollections of his close friend, American journalist and socialist in the early 1900s, when Jan Siebel entered the United States and was asked, what is your name? He said, John Rockefeller. And when they asked him why, he said, this is the wealthiest name I know. So he might have been become you know, John Rockefeller, but they did not want another Rockefeller in the family. So he accepted the name of Ivan of the Folk. Right. But he also presented himself as a person who was very close to the emperor. He presented himself as a guru, as a kind of magician. He was a theosophist. He was a very close associate of a flamboyant American artist from a very wealthy family. Bob Chandler from New York City, and he used to live in the House of Fantasy in New York, the home which belonged to Chandler, and was a meeting space for all kinds of people from the entire world. So he made several connections there. He was also close to Nikolai Rorik, the famous artist and the um, theosophist who went to China, to India, to Tibet, and searched for the legendary Shambhala. The problem with this guy is that although he presented himself as the man of the people, uh, Ivan of the people, like Ivan the Fool in Russian folklore, he had so many faces. So while you're working on him, while you're connecting all these articles, most of them were signed, but there were also mystifications which never been signed, and they spread all over the world as kind of viruses. Mm -hmm. So... It's like the mirror which consists of numerous pieces. It's a very interesting professionally, actually. Right. You bring someone from obscurity to the world and just to show that you yourself can feel
0: refraction in this face, which consists of so many faces. There's something particularly American about his story. We have this saying, fake it till you make it. I actually heard it earlier today. Mm -hmm. Right? A lot of the capitalist entrepreneurial spirit Mm -hmm. of America is a lot of these kind of hucksters Mm -hmm. that are blowing themselves up and faking it as they go along until they have success. And clearly, he also had success. Oh, no. No. Really? The thing is, he
1: actually created several firms, companies. He was a director or the president of all of them. And on the board, there were names of, I don't know, Sigmund Freud, Edison, Einstein, uh, Einstein and others. They didn't know about that. Edison hired Pinkerton agents just to figure out who this guy was. But he failed all his project. Is it because he took it too far? Because it was even strange for America um, to be like this, mm-hmm. and because it confronted his other selves. In 1907, he appointed himself the president of the United States of Russia, and he deposed Nicholas II from the Russian throne. So when businessmen learned about his other selves, they became a little bit suspicious. And Although he made some money and published a lot, he never achieved his dream. He sent his scripts to Hollywood and he really wanted some of his fantasies to make films out um, of them. And he suffered with the death of his patron, the artist Bob Chandler. And then the Great Depression happened, so he lost everything, including his apartment on Riverside Drive. So he went to his summer cottage in Connecticut. I was there before the pandemic and took some pictures. And you know what? The story is quite sad. Because he died in complete obscurity. Although before his death, he had denounced Stalin and sent him to prison using his abilities. He died one year after Stalin's death, but he was buried there. And I found an old man who actually remembered him as a child. And he connected me with someone from the cemetery, from the historical society. They found the grave, but there's no actual grave, there is just a spot no cross, nothing, no monument, nothing. So I think that this is a story from ash to ash, yeah, from dust to dust. So he was born in obscurity. He died in obscurity. But the matter is what is in
0: between. Well, what does the United States mm-hmm. and American culture at the time fit into this man's story, experience and successes of forgery? First of all, I don't think that there is such thing as United States
1: of the time, because there were several very distinct periods. When he came to the United States in the mid-1900s, there was a huge interest in the Russian Empire. There was a huge interest in Russian Revolution. There was a huge interest in Russian royal family. So he just served the purpose. The, The information was needed, and he was considered as an expert. So I would say that he is a parody of expertise and American reliance on expertise of any period. But periods were different. In the 1920s, after the revolution and when America invested hugely in uh, Russia, and there were uh, exhibitions of American art in Russia and Soviet art in America, he re-emerged as the expert in Russian art. And he satisfied the interests of the society by providing some kind of fantastic stories about works of art which came into his own possession, including the crown of Catherine the Great and the correspondence between Tamerlan and Grand Prince Vladimir. So once someone suspected that he is a fraud he published a very short announcement or whatever in New York Times that his apartment in Riverside Drive was robbed and the most precious documents and artifacts were stolen and now he asked the insurance company to pay him back So this is the 20s the art in the 30s he completely emerged into the politics again but the politics was associated with Russian-American relations. In the first half of the decade, they were quite positive, And then it changed, and he changed as well. He produced a number of fake interviews with Joseph Stalin and Stalin learned about that and so he thought that there was a conspiracy against him but he never learned that this conspiracy came from Greenwich Village uh, kind of a uh, person who was not that serious in the 40s he became a proto macarty person so i would say that he reflected the change of american attitudes uh, towards the russian empire and the soviet union and he just followed various trends and this is perhaps the reason why some of his readers were interested in him because they heard what they wanted to hear. But as I mentioned, he didn't make money off uh, this. He just had a very vivid and absolutely crazy imagination, which makes him so interesting as a personality.
0: Well, let's talk about one of these things that he propagated and you wrote about. And this is this mystic monastery, something, place in Tibet, somewhere in the Himalaya Mountains called Shambhala. Mm -hmm. What is this all about? What is this myth and the whole thing about it at this period? Well, you can call it
1: myth. You can call it a part of the Buddhist religion, the mythic country hidden in the depth of Tibet, of wizards, of happy people. It's like the happy land. It's a sort of utopia, which became extremely popular in the late 19th, early 20th century with the flourishment of theosophy which claim that there is a land of secret knowledge. Mm-hmm. There is a great film, which I really love, and based on a very good novel, Lost Horizon. I don't know if you ever watched it. This is a pre-war film, which tells us of the story of a certain group of American English travelers who discovered Shambhala and what actually happened with them there. And it was not called Shambhala, it was called Shangri-La. Mm-hmm. Shangri-La is also the name of the president's villa. And from where the bombing of Japan actually started. But it was not the author of the novel or the film director who made up and expanded on the notion of Shambhala. It turned out that to help someone to justify his mission, he published his article, actually in Pittsburgh Gazette, but all over the United States, actually, it was published. And this was a story for him about the ideal community of wizards from various countries who tried to save the world on the eve of the terrible disaster which actually happened in World War II. So for him, it was not only mystification, and here I enter the most important part of my research as related to this great Waker He considered it his own mission as a sort of science fiction prophet to warn the nations about what is coming. And he believed that he is one of the chosen wizards who actually can foresee the future. So it was a parable, not only mystification of fraud of his behalf. And again, the word actually spread all over the world. That's what happens with fakes. Some of them, probably minority of the fakes, reaches the audience and stay in the national mythologies or whatever, we can call this and affect writers, poets, uh, politicians, literary critics, art historians. They believe in certain things, although originally
0: they had been fakes. Let's talk about one of those actually because a few years ago you wrote an essay looking at the origins of a famous quotation that's been attributed to Dostoevsky. And that quotation is, the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. Now, he never wrote these words. Yet, I've read them, I've heard them, I've seen them referenced, and I've seen them attributed to Dostoevsky on multiple occasions. How did this get tied with Dostoevsky? Well, first of all, I want to say that it is not that difficult, especially
1: in our Age of databases, computer searches. Later on, we will use artificial intellect for this person to debunk a certain mystification. It's not that difficult. It's not uh, that difficult to trace the history of mystification, although it's more difficult, how it entered different contexts. What is at the core of the matter, I believe, is to figure out why this mystification became popular, why they needed these words. So the words of Dostoevsky, which you just cited, did not belong to him. Moreover, the statement is against what Dostoevsky believed in. Quote became popular in the early 1960s, and it was used by the proponents of anti-prison movement. It was used by many human rights activists, but initially it was attributed to many other writers, starting from Voltaire. But they ended up with Dostoevsky, and they even published a journal with the motto these particular words attributed to Dostoevsky and his great half fictional novel, Notes from the Dead House, since Dostoevsky spent several years in Siberia imprisoned. So they used the name and the authority of the great Russian author to justify their cause. So it was originally a mistake. And then they populated the statement with the meanings which responded to American fighters for human rights. Mm -hmm. The irony of the case was that the quote was used and they kept using it so many times that eventually it was translated into Russian. And they used the same statement in Russian as a slogan in one of the women's prisons in Kaliningrad. So it backfired. But my point was that the whole story tells us about the vision of Dostoevsky, about what they wanted from Dostoevsky, how they used uh, Dostoevsky for their purposes. So my publication was not about Dostoevsky. My publication was about America. Interestingly enough, one of the most characteristic, I don't know, peculiar, whatever, I don't know which word characterizes him better, one prisoner who was sentenced to death for murdering policemen. He argued that he rediscovered himself by reading Dostoevsky. He used this quote, and he published a number of novels from the prison. The problem was that all these novels were pornographic novels. He made a fortune of them. He was released, actually, uh, yes. So, he came back, and I lost the trace of him, but his last job was instructor at one of New Jersey colleges but he claimed that he is the american dostoevsky who rediscovered himself in prison but i assure you listeners that dostoevsky never ever
0: wrote a pornographic novel <laughs> yeah that was be... had other things. <laughs> yet <had> other <laughs> and after you published this article in the la review of books you wrote a short little update because it just so happened that after you wrote this essay uncovering How Dostoevsky never used these words. The well-known author, Michelle Alexander, the author of the new Jim Crow book, wrote an op-ed in the New York Times and she used this quote. And you wrote the editors saying, hey, Dostoevsky never wrote this. How did they take your
1: correction? oh, it was a very long story which ended up in another story which I published in Los Angeles Book Review. I sent them this note and asked to make this correction and refer to an earlier publication. They didn't believe me. So uh, I have actually several quotes from them. So this is the editors of The New York the editors, Times responding yeah. to you. Not editors. Uh, they have a special like, division of correction, checking facts. No response. Then I sent to another editor and finally received an acknowledgement from a third one. Mm-hmm. Thank you. You will hear from us soon. <laughs> Several days passed, and I emailed again about the status of the correction. We sent it to a third party. I was then. I found it's really interesting. So it's so long. Uh, several days later, I received a request from the editor asking to confirm whether I quote my finding was now a consensus in my industry. I never actually defined my profession as industry. It's interesting, but I wrote most certainly. Was there any pushback was another question. I was surprised and I said, no, not to the best of my knowledge, because it's obvious that Dostoevsky did not write these words. It was not the end of the story, Sean. So they wrote to me back. We just don't want to correct the corrections if anything is wrong with your corrections. We have to prove a thing is true beyond a reasonable doubt. And that's something which actually served as a trigger for me, because this was the issue which Dostoevsky raised in most of his writings, especially over the last period of his life. Whether we want or not want to believe into anything, he even attended a spiritual science to test his inability to acknowledge the interference of ghosts, of specters, because he believed that there were demons, into our life. And he formulated something which he called, based on his experience, formulated something which he called the law of of disbelief. It runs as following You will never ever believe into something you do not want to believe in. No matter how many proofs they will send you, submit to you, or present, there's some blocking part of our mind or of our soul. Dostoevsky would prefer to speak about the soul, so we want believe into something we do not want to believe. So, the reason doubt was something very important for him, and he even put these words into his last novel, The Karamazov in Alyosha's Experience. So, I decided to continue the communication, and I responded that Dostoevsky did not write these words, and it would be unreasonable to continue attributing them to him. Okay, the editor responded, but reluctantly, and asked me what I thought about the following correction. And this is my favorite. I quote, The origin of the quotation is uncertain. Russian literature scholars, scholars in plural, say that its frequent attribution to Dostoevsky is erroneous. Well, I didn't like it. And I said that, first of all, I did trace its origin, and I can't pretend to be multipersonal multi-personal Russian scholars or whatever, American scholars person. While the copy desk chief is still working this case, I decided to get the most authoritative proof I could find. And of course, because we have the story which actually circled around the ghost theme, I wrote to the editor that I had, and I did have, a spiritual seance. I invited my wife as a witness, and my daughter, history major at the time, and the second witness. And I summoned Dostoevsky from the great beyond to ask him the question, did you write this or you did not? And as the hero, the characters of my book on spiritualism did it, I kept notes. So I have a stenogram of a script of this conversation. So since you interviewed people for so many times, can We reenact this?
0: Let's reenact your seance with Fyodor Dostoevsky, definitely, yes.
1: And I give you a chance to be Dostoevsky, if you do not mind, because I want to be an interviewer. I never did it in my life. Okay,
0: yes. Well, I don't know if I can recreate him. Uh Of course, we don't know what he sounded like, nor am I going to do this in Russian, but I'll play the part to my best ability. But one thing is to feel
1: like Dostoevsky, you should feel that you have a very long beard. Yes. (laughs) Your eyes should be like really fiery. Right, right. Yes, and you should really. Yes. Okay. Mm -hmm. So, and I will be myself interviewing Dostoevsky, Fyodor Mikhailich. Thank you for joining
0: us. My pleasure. As you know, I despise spiritualist seances they are nothing but devil's tricks that ruin proper faith. So, please be quick. Oh, I apologize, sir, and I promise to be quick. Everything uh, well over there? Yeah, I'm fine, but I still worry about the world I left behind. It's in misery. Did you happen to read the latest New York Times op-ed by Michelle Alexander? Well, you might know we're not allowed to comment on earthly publications, but... As a former prisoner, I can tell you that I think Alexander's plea is noble and urgent. Did you write the words attributed to you in the article as
1: well as in many other articles? The degree of civilization in a society can be judged by
0: entering its prisons. These words are not mine. Can you imagine my using the term civilization in a positive sense? Besides, the point I was trying to make in the House of the Dead is that prison— as awful as it was, forced my protagonist to reevaluate his past and his secular beliefs and eventually to bless the fate that enabled his Christian revival. But I agree that our attitude towards prisoners is hugely indicative of our mentality. Mm -hmm. In that case, since the quote has been
1: used constantly in the West and serves a good cause, would you agree to endorse it now rather than completely dismiss it, to acknowledge it, so to speak?
0: All right. But with a small indentation. These should always be described as my posthumous words, with reference to my current statement, Made on what's the date down there? Oh yes, 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 June sixteenth, twenty twenty. Oh, thank you. It will be my honor to
1: communicate this message if it isn't already too late. Just to make sure, what do you think about the following wording? As Fyodor Dostoevsky, born in eighteen twenty one, died in eighteen eighty one, famously said in the late nineteen sixties.
0: That works for me. Please keep me posted. And if your daughter really does want to become a lawyer, ask her to read The House of the Dead. At that point, the connection
1: was lost. And I did await some time the copy desk editor's decision, and they published the correction. But you know what? In a couple of months from there, they published someone's interview with the same statement. Right. And I checked it right before our interview, Sean. And on Twitter I found the following Fyodor Dostoevsky, novelist and philosopher, the degree of civilization in a society can be judged by entering its prisons. Date three ten AM, October second, twenty twenty three. Eighteen thousand four hundred views, fifty-seven reports, one quote, two hundred and forty three people likes it, and sixteen bookmarks. <laughs> so you cannot destroy the ghost. It's a part of our culture. And again, I want to emphasize this for our audience, that the statement is noble. I agree with the statement. It just doesn't belong to Dostoevsky. And it reflects a certain cultural situation in the United States, which made the fake Dostoevsky quote so popular and important.
0: Does it matter? That's a good question. I
1: don't think it matters. Well, it matters from the historical perspective. So if you prove facts, you have to prove the facts. If you want to believe, you will believe in something, even if you see the facts and they just do not work upon you. But from the point of view which I advocate and which my book project on mystification uh, is centered on, is what matters is why we need these particular fakes, these particular words, what they tell us about ourselves what they tell us about various media which were involved into the process of this myth-making. So the key thing is not to debunk the myth. The key thing is, A, to, as I mentioned, to show that it is a crooked mirror of our own culture. doesn't speak of Dostoevsky, but of ourselves. And second, that's why I use the parody here, I do hope that it's possible to slightly... Differentiate yourself from very serious matters, to look at yourself and the civilization in which you work and live from aside, we do need to have a little bit sense of humor in the world of grave mood and seriousness, which sometimes is very difficult to live
0: in. Well, you know, since 2016, or more or less, but a little bit maybe before, fact-checking Hunting down what is misinformation, what is disinformation, all of this trying to uncover the truth that's being obscured has become an industry like your Russian scholars are an industry. In this effort to, you know, I see articles all the time and say the Washington Post has a regular column where it has this like Pinocchio thing. Do you think they're missing a point, something here that instead of trying to – now, I'm not saying they shouldn't focus on fact-checking. But are they missing something else by not recognizing why these have so much currency? I think the latter. I think that it also depends on what you want to do.
1: And there are readers who actually are thirsty of learning about another fake statement proved to be a forgery fake. So they have their own readers, the audience. From my perspective, I think that it's definitely not enough. The key thing, I repeat myself, is to understand why certain things become myths, why people uh, tend to believe in certain things, no matter whether they're proved or just uh, exist as commonly accepted phrases or if someone already showed that they are made up. Mm -hmm. The thing is to see through this history of fakes, of mystifications, the story of your own culture, and in many ways of your own mind, of your own ambitions, your own hopes, your own fears. I can give you an example. Freud used dreams as manifestations of some deeper processes which happen in our mind. Why don't we use mystifications, forgeries, and fakes as these kind of dreams of our civilization which we dream and which we believe in and analyze them not as a psychoanalyst but as cultural critics. And in these, they hold
0: some desire that we want to be true. We want – it either maybe confirms our beliefs. It it paints the world in a way that we want. Do you have a preliminary answer as to why – maybe this is going deep into psychology, but why – Like you, you said about Dostoevsky, he had this thing. If you don't want to believe it, you're not going to essentially. Do you have an answer as to why that's the case? My goal is to describe the case and to show that it is very important. I do have some
1: insights, but of course, I cannot argue that I'm right or not. Speaking of the Russian society of the 19th century and 20th century, speaking of Russian intelligentsia, they usually say that there were several major questions. What's happened? What is to be done? Who is to blame for? I believe that the main question of the Russian intelligence, and I also believe that it's the main question for the majority of educated people is whom to believe to. So this is the search for the absolute authority. Yeah. So if they believe that Dostoevsky is like spiritual, it's also man-made myth authority, they will use Dostoevsky antibiotics to him the statements which he did not use. The society, educated society, and maybe the society in general needs the absolute authorities, like the gods from the great beyond, who will answer all questions in the way, actually, they want to hear
0: right. <laughs> rather than
1: that. So from this perspective, I think that it's inherent in our nature to look for the most authorial response to things. Mm-hmm. And... You know it better because you do podcasts, you interview people, you see how they make their own strategies, but you have your own agenda as well. How different is a media person from the medium at spiritual seance? Of course, you deal with real people who answer questions probably in the way you did not expect they will. But at the spiritual seance and in culture, when you deal with some kind of mythos, not real people, but just refer to someone, or you summon someone from the great beyond, you put into his or her or their mouth what you want to hear. Not you, perhaps, but the circle which you represent, whether this is a circle of a certain political party or a group or believers or they think that you interview and you get the answer, but in fact, this is just a replica of what you want to hear. Mm -hmm. So another reason which is related to the search for authority is to get a confirmation of what you want to hear. It's about power. It is about power. It's also about uncertainty. It's about fear. It's about fear that you live in the world and you don't know how to orient yourself into the world. There are so many, especially nowadays, sources of information, so many things which are happening at the same time. The media, the internet, everything is around you. Just it's normal to feel confusion, even no. absolute confusion. But the absolute confusion originates absolute
0: fakes. So this is tragic. I mean, in this sense, we are living in this postmodern age where you know, origins, authority, truth is very much manufactured and contested and a lot of it is done through fakes and forgeries and disinformation to paint a picture of the world that serves whatever, whether it's a political power or psychological purpose.
1: This is true in terms of degree, but I don't think that this is true, that this is something absolutely new. And I have a lecture today in Slavic department, also about one mystification or half mystification. And I have the final quote for the lecture, which was written by the author of the late 19th century. And if I don't tell
0: you, you may tell me that this is about nowadays. Let's talk about why you're here, (laughs) why you're in Pittsburgh, why you've come back to Pitt. Because you're giving a talk in a little while, actually called "The Long Hand of Moscow: The International History of an African American Protest Song." And of course, this really touched my interest because I'm working on a documentary about a black communist mm-hmm. who died in the forced labor camp in oh. the Soviet Union. What's his name? Love at Fort Whiteman. Love Fort. So I'm interested in this relationship between African Americans, American ideas of race, and the Soviet Union. So this really connected to me. So tell us about this talk you're going to give in this protest song. Yeah. So in
1: 1936, a collection of the African-American protest songs was published. The songs were discovered by a certain New Yorker, Lawrence Gellert, who claimed that he collected them in the South. His brother was a famous American communist and a publisher of a communist journal. So I traced the history of the collection through the history of this particular song, which one of our, graduate students found sound like strange because of the message. It does not feed uh, the African-American poetry of the time. So I managed to trace the history and to show at least at the hypothesis that the template for the song was created by the American section of the Comintern in Moscow. And it was a very interesting detective story to trace the origins and the distribution of the song which later on served as very important purpose for the African-American human rights movement. So this is another thing. So it was orchestrated. It served certain political purposes of Stalin's Mm commentary, but then it lost the context and it became authentic. But that's what happens with many folk works. Mm -hmm. So I found it telling because if you do not have some ready answer and if you move from one point to another and trace the history of this particular artifact within international political cultural context, you can see how many additional meanings and nuances you can add to this particular right. work. But the question whether it
0: was fabricated becomes not relevant. Exactly. It has a life of its own, just like Dostoevsky's quote, right? It becomes disentangled from its origins. Mm-hmm. And it acquires meaning through repetition, through Im- by certain communities, certain groups. I mean, again, just like Dostoevsky's quote, the anti-prison movement. The origin at some point becomes not important, I think. What is the song called? Sisters and Brethren. Do you know if it's been recorded? It was recorded.
1: The wording is so close to the uh, protest song written in Hebrew in the same time, a little bit earlier. So this is the sign that all or most of these songs use certain pattern, But they became nationalized. They became the voices of respective groups, and they played a very important role. Other writers, other poets, and film directors, and theater directors used this song and referred to it. So, the life of its own. I like this expression. So, what is this last line you wanted to point out? Again, this is from the Russian writer, who was a materialist, who hated spiritualism, Mikhail Sotikovchidhin. I would call him a Russian Marcus. Yeah, kind of a satirist. Yeah, he was a satirist, and he wrote a story of a very critical view. Not critical, it's a devastating interpretation of Russian history, the history of a town. And he wrote in 1876 the following paragraph. It's a very short paragraph. I fully understand that phantoms should vanish with the first ray of sun. But alas, I do not know when this ray will appear. That is what oppresses me. Our reality is so overcrowded, so filled with them, that we cannot see the contours of life for the hordes of phantoms. Not only that, we ourselves are becoming phantoms, taking on their image. Could there be a worse affliction than this? Alas, these phantoms are stronger than strength, more alive than life. And I, who am writing these lines, I write them under the yoke of phantoms. And you, who are reading and listening, if I may add, these lines, you also read them under the yoke of phantoms. An epigraph to 2016 or maybe 2024.
0: I was going to ask if you think these phantoms are around us as well.
1: I think that if we manage to keep common sense, decency, and sympathy for each other, not rational, but emotional things, including common sense, then we can withstand the power of phantoms, which is definitely increasing, especially in certain periods of history. I would also add some degree of irony and self-irony that helps to survive in very dramatic periods of history.
0: That was Ilya Vinitsky. Ilya Vinitsky is a professor in the Department of Slavic Languages and Literatures at Princeton University. He's the author of several books on some wide-ranging topics, including romanticism, emotion, translation, bad poetry, and, as you heard in this interview, fakes and forgeries in the Russian literary culture. And his current project looks at a man named Ivan Nurodny who was a Russian-Estonian expat writer, an art critic, and con man who immigrated to the United States in the 1920s, who the FBI labeled as the worst fraud that ever came out of Russia. I'm Sean Guillory, your host. I should mention, too, that this episode was edited and mixed by Daniel Cooper from PodCuts Editing. If you have some audio work that needs to be done, or maybe you run a podcast yourself, And, you know, you understand that sometimes editing can be tedious and take a lot of time. And then, of course, there is all the little bells and whistles that go on with making the audio sound better through mixing. And I decided to outsource some of this to Daniel Cooper, who has a podcast editing business called Podcuts Editing. If you need some good work done, I highly recommend him. Go to podcutsediting.com and he will give you your first edit free. The Eurasian Knot is sponsored by the Center for Russian, East European, and Eurasian Studies at the University of Pittsburgh, and listeners just like you, if you like this podcast and you listen to it regularly, I encourage you, I urge you, I beg you to please become a monthly patron, give a couple of bucks a month to help keep this going, and if you cannot, for whatever reason, give some money, you can really help us out by spreading the word about the podcast on social media, word of mouth etc. This is also a big help. So, until next time. Bye.